Acts 4. That was Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, book of Acts, um, and then chapter 4. It's going to be verses 1 through 22 today, okay? And before we uh, look at that text, um, you know, I was really surprised to get the call from Matt. Usually when he's preaching through a book of the Bible, he doesn't let anybody else preach through it. So I'm really honored that he to let me even preach a, uh, you know, a, a book of the Bible that he's, he's already going through. Uh, and so I was telling that to Greg before the service. Uh, and he was like, yeah, that sounds like Matt, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I'm really uh, excited to do this with you guys as you guys have been journeying through Acts together. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm humbled uh, that I get to, to do this with you guys. So, um, but before we get to Acts 4, I uh, just have a few uh, kind of introductory remarks that I've noticed in the past few weeks as I've watched the, uh, the media and I've, as I've watched, uh, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, even sports and, and different things like that, that there has been a common theme of, of protest a lot lately. Uh, a lot of people uh, protesting, uh, and not just, you know, in the most recent weeks, but I would say even in the past few years. Um, you know, I remember when I first moved to Dayton and they had the... Uh, forget the name of that group, but they were downtown, and they were, like, sleeping out in the middle of the courtyard, and, uh, you know, it just a lot of protesting has been going on for the past few years. A lot of uh, people just feel like social injustice or, or problems that are going on in our country, and so they want to, to do something about it. And so, you know, I, I, I did some, a little bit of research this week on just what, what would somebody kind of, at the most basic level, classify as a protest, Um, In the most basic level, uh, people who do a protest recognize a wrong or an injustice, and they want to draw attention to it by disrupting the status quo, okay? So essentially, that's what a protest is. It's a a group of people or it's a person who recognizes a wrong or an injustice in society, in the world, and they want to draw attention to it by disrupting the status quo, Um, And we can see that if you take that definition of a protest, that I would say Jesus was a protester. (laughs) Okay? Uh, Jesus recognized wrong and injustice in the world, and he disrupted the status quo. He He brought attention to it. I would say the early church, as you've been going through the book of Acts, is doing the same thing. They are protesting injustices that they see or wrongs that they see in the world, and they're disrupting the status quo. And so there's a very real sense in our text that we're looking at today that we're seeing what does a Christian protest look like. (laughs) It's okay, I think, for Christians to protest. And so, uh, but how can we do that in a way that honors God and honors Christ Um, that's following Christ's example. And so as we explore this text, I'm hoping that we'll see some characteristics of a Christian protest. Uh, So I've entitled this message, The Christian Protest. (laughs) You know, uh, that's what I see is going on here in Acts 4. Now, before we unravel some of those characteristics or those truths, um, I think it's important for us to understand that Acts 4 uh, is set in a, a context and that it comes after Acts 3. So it should be helpful to just review, okay, what happened in Acts 3, because that's going to help us understand what's happening better in in Acts 4, okay? Uh, So let's all remind ourselves what took place in Acts 3. So we know that Peter and John are going up to Jerusalem 
And they're going there uh, during the time of prayer, is what Acts 3 tells us. Now, you know, it's, there's a debate on what they're going up there to do, whether or not they're going up there to pray, or whether or not they're going up there to worship. Uh, but, you know, uh, they could be doing those things. But honestly, I, I, I think what they're doing is that they're actually probably praying and worshiping in homes, um, and they're actually going to the temple to evangelize. Um, I, I think they're going there to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to lost and dying people. Uh, because they knew this is a place where they could maximize those efforts. A lot of people in there in Jerusalem went to the temple. Uh, so they said, okay, how can we preach the gospel to as many people as we can? And so let's go to the temple during the hour of prayer, and a whole bunch of people are going to be there, and we're going to be able to preach the gospel to them. Uh, and so they're going there to uh, evangelize. Now, on their way in, they meet a man who has been lame from birth, okay? And they meet this man, and he's asking them, he's, he's dropped off at the temple every day, and he asks for alms, or he asks for, you know, generous gifts uh, to, you know, feed, you know, himself, and probably clothe himself, and all these different, just basic human needs, right? Uh, and so he's there begging, you know, for money. And uh, Peter says to this man, he says, silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus Christ stand up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. He starts praising the Lord because he's now finally able to walk. Uh, people are amazed by this. And so Peter uh, sees that, you know, people are amazed and they're like wondering, like, what is happening? We've known this guy our whole lives and he's been always here at the temple and he's been lame and never been able to walk. And now he's walking. What, what, what's going on here? <laughs> and so Peter sees this as a great opportunity. Let me show you uh, that this is continuing the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the power of God at work among us. Uh, and so he proclaims the gospel in that situation. And according to Acts 4.4, 4, uh, we see that many people believe the message that Peter was proclaiming, this gospel message, this good news uh, to them, and a number of increase, and Christians increased greatly uh, during that time. Okay? So there are a few, uh, that, that, this kind of gets us caught up, okay, that's where we're at in the story, all right, is Peter's preaching the gospel, and people are kind of wondering what all this stuff means, all right? And so we've got a few texts today, or a few verses in our text that will summarize, I think, uh, what our text is primarily about today, and so I'm going to ask us to stand together and read uh, these few verses uh, together. So why don't you stand with me as I read a few verses from Acts and we're just standing to change our posture to recognize that we're about to hear from the, the word of God. And this is, a, this is a big deal. So God is about to speak. So let's all listen. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 and 2 first. Okay? And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now skip down with me to verse 12. This is Peter talking. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for no other name under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. Now these religious leaders, verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And then, skip down to verse 16 saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may uh, spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach in all, uh, at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered this, and whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak, uh, but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. This is God's word. You can be seated. So I'm, I'm going to break this text up, you know, 1 through 22 into kind of two major sections, okay? We're going to look at verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to look at verses 13 through 22. And in verses 1 through 12 here, I think we're seeing, uh, if you want to, you know, have like a, a way to kind of summarize up these few verses, it's we're seeing the uh, proclaim, that we're seeing the apostles proclaim the freedom of the resurrection, okay? So proclaiming the freedom of the resurrection here is what's happening in verses 1 through 12. So in verses 1 and 2, we immediately see that Peter was preaching in Solomon's porch, right, in Acts 3, verses 11 through 26. And we see the response of the Jewish leaders at this time is, uh, there's kind of a big rumbling going on here. We need to check out and see what's happening. So they sent, you know, some, some leaders over to kind of evaluate, okay, who told these guys that they could preach? In Solomon's porch. Who told them that they could preach this good news? Like, why are they doing this, this miraculous sign? Is this miraculous sign even real? You know, they're, 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 essentially they're doing an investigation here. Okay? They're going to gather some research and some data to say, okay, what, what is going on here? And so they're, uh, they're sent there and it says uh, immediately in verse 2 that as they come, what's the posture of these Jewish leaders? They're greatly annoyed, <laughs> right? That's what it says right there in verse 2. They're, they're greatly annoyed with Peter and John. And why are they greatly annoyed? Well, I think it's cluing us in here at the end of verse 2 um, because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, okay? Now, let, let's be clear here on what's happening with these Jewish leaders. Um, the Jewish leaders during this time, uh, we have the captain of the temple, which is like, you know, basically to say the police force, okay? Uh, this is the, the police force of the temple, uh, and so he's there. But we have priest, and then he has specific name of the Sadducees, okay? So the Sanhedrin is who they would have appeared before. Um, you know, when this investigation happens at the end, they're gonna eventually going to arrest them and, and take them before a court, and they would have appeared before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was broken up into two major groups. We had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, they, they didn't believe in Jesus, but they believed in the resurrection of the dead. They thought that was a biblical idea. The Sadducees did not. Um, so, Luke is very specific in the language that he's using here. He says that they're greatly annoyed because, not because they're proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees wouldn't have had a problem with that. But they're proclaiming it in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. So they're saying, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's the beginning of the end times. He's the beginning of the last days. Uh, so this resurrection of the dead started with Jesus, and it's going to continue with Jesus. And so the Pharisees have a problem with this because they're saying, okay, we have no problem with you preaching the resurrection from the dead, but we do have a problem with you saying it in the name of Jesus. Now, the Sadducees are a different group, okay? This would be more of the, uh, you know, so you can imagine the Pharisees are a kind of representative of maybe 
um, you know, modern, fundamentalist, you know, kind of evangelical Christianity, okay? And then you have over here, uh, the Sadducees would be uh, a representative of very liberal, progressive Christianity, okay? And I'm picking out those as two extremes, okay? Uh, and so over here, they said, there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. You know, the Bible's basically just a bunch of moralistic code, you know, that's good for general human flourishing. But, you know, whether you believe in God or not, that's not really that big a deal. There's certainly no resurrection of the dead. There's certainly no demons. There's no such thing as Satan or any. These are just principles that you find in the Bible. And so they have a problem with what Peter and John are preaching because they have a problem of the resurrection of the dead. So they're saying this is bad theology. Uh, both groups are, are, are very concerned about this. And they're upset, obviously, because what has happened. They have interrupted the status quo. Now, let's just stop and take a moment here, okay? Is, you know, I know there's very, uh, varying opinions, you know, especially you know, young people are all into protest and older people are usually not. They're just like, settle down, young people. <laughs> you know? So you know, I, I get all that, right? So, but let's just stop and take a second here and say, okay, what, what's the disruption? What's the status quo, okay? Well, the status quo we can find back in chapter 3, verse 2. Okay, this is the status quo. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried and whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. That's the status quo. Here's someone who was lame from birth that has been not oppressed by his own choice, okay? Not has been put down, you know? It's not that, hey, he sinned and now he's lame, okay? He's just, this is the effects of a sinful world, right? That's the status quo. Is someone who's being oppressed, is someone who can't even thrive, that can't go out and get a good job uh, because of the way things are set up in the world. And so this is someone who is very much in agony. And so Peter and Jane, John don't have the money to help him, but they have the power of the gospel to do something about it. And so they do. They preach the gospel. The power of God heals him, and he is now able to get up and walk and thrive as a, a, as a contributor of society and human flourishing now. And so what are the leaders of their time upset with? They're upset with that. Does that make any sense to you? That makes no sense to me. Here is God who has worked a miracle to see, to bring healing into the world, and the leaders at the, at the time have a problem with it. Why do they have a problem with it? Because it undermines their leadership. They see themselves losing power and influence over the people. That's the problem. So it's not actually they have a problem. It's not that they actually want flourishing, that they want help for this man. And they said, oh, I wish you would have let us do it. No, they didn't care about the guy. They only cared about only losing their own power and influence. And so Peter and John are, are choosing to do something about this because they want to disrupt the status quo. And where did they get that from? They got that from the ministry of Christ. Christ all throughout his ministry was, had a ministry to who? The outcasts, those rejected by society, those who society had ridden off and said, we don't really care about you, that you're a drain on our economy. 
uh, you're, you're a problem. We wish you would just kind of go out into the wilderness and just leave us all alone. And it would pass by these people. Would, oh, you're, you're unclean. It's, it's dirty for me to even touch you. And they would use their religion as a way to, to validate these things. Oh, I, I would make myself unclean if I touch you, and then I'd have to go offer extra sacrifices, which is going to cost me more money. You know, uh, I'm going to have to go buy some more turtle doves, or I'm going to have to buy some more, you know, pigeons, or whatever, you know, and, and, and offer up sacrifice, or I have to buy a goat, you know, and offer up a sacrifice. You know, it, it, this cost me a lot of money. So I, I wish you would just go away. And these were the religious leaders of the day. This was their attitude. This is their, their thought process. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, no, I, I'm not going to, to treat people that way. That God loves the poor. God loves the lowly. God loves the despised. And we see all throughout Jesus' ministry who are the people that are mostly responding to the gospel. The outcasts, the, 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 the people who have been pushed out to the fringes of society. And they're the ones that are responding to Christ. It's the religious leaders of the day, those people who are in positions of power, who hated Jesus. Because they saw their power, their influence slipping away. And so Peter and John are continuing this ministry where Jesus left off. And so, uh, much like they did with Jesus, that when the religious leaders did not like what Jesus was doing, they didn't like his ministry, what did they do? They didn't just kill him, okay? Uh, Because killing in the Bible is different than murder. They murdered him. And murder means someone who has malicious intent, premeditated to harm. Okay? It wasn't just like a, a, like a self-defense thing, you know, like Jesus came into their house and they were like, oh, you know, and it's the middle of the night. And they were like, oh, I'm hearing somebody. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not. This is premeditated. They were calculating, plotting. How could we murder this innocent man? And so what would we call that we call that persecution right we call this injustice we call these uh, oppression and so it makes sense that as they did that with jesus jesus tells us in matthew 5 that you know blessed are you if you are persecuted because they if they persecuted me they're going to persecute you right paul tells us in second timothy uh, 3 verse 2 that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. To live a godly life is to be persecuted because you're, what, you're doing what? You're disrupting the status quo. <laughs> you're messing up everybody. Hey, everybody's comfortable. Everybody's comfortable in their own sin. You know, everybody's comfortable with, you know, people being lame and depressed and, you know, not able to get out of bed and to thrive in society. Everybody's okay with that. And so if you, when you bring the gospel into a culture and people start to, radi- if life change, radical life change really starts to happen, people get upset by it because you're disrupting the status quo. And so you will be persecuted. Now look in with me in uh, verse 13. Here's the assessment as the leaders kind of start to do their investigation. They look, do an investigation in verses 5 through 12 into uh, what uh, Peter and John are preaching here and teaching and what they're doing and who gave them the authority to do all this stuff. And here's their assessment in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. 
Now, that, that, that boldness word is interesting in the original Greek. It can be translated courage, okay? That when they saw the courage of Peter and John. And then one commentator I read basically said, a, a really a better way to say this, that what they're really saying is when they saw the freedom of speech of Peter and John. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> they saw the freedom of speech, that they were not afraid to tell these men the truth. So let's read it. Let's see what they told them, okay? Look at their courage here. Look at their boldness. Look at their freedom of speech. It says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, because they're, they're asking him, who, who told you you could do who, By what power of the name, right, in verse 7, who, who told you in the name you could, you could do this? So Peter, filled with the Spirit, rulers of the people and elders, for if we have been examined concerning a good deed, so we've done this good deed of this crippled man, okay? We've, we've done something. Anybody recognizes this is good. By what means uh, this man has been Let it all be known to, to, to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now here it is. Listen to this. Would this get under your skin here if you're putting yourself in the religious leader's circumstances? Whom you crucified. If that ain't bold, if that doesn't take courage, if that's not the freedom of speech in the midst of oppression, I don't know what is. They're calling them out right there. They said, you've had us arrested. You're about to, we, we know you have the power to kill us, to throw us in jail for the rest of our lives. But I want you to know, I want you to know, and I want all the people of Israel to know, you crucified the Son of God. Dang! I'm not sure if I would have the kind of boldness or courage or freedom of speech to say that in the midst of my oppressors. That takes some courage. Now listen to this. I think this is the reason why they have this courage. Whom God raised from the dead why do they have the freedom of speech why do they have this courage why do they have this boldness because they recognize you persecuted our savior you killed you murdered him you put him in the ground but god was so pleased with his life that he raised him from the dead and he's promised us that if we will stand before men and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. You can't do anything to us. Why did they have freedom? Because of the resurrection. Because, of the re because they believed the resurrection. I see there's resurrection language all throughout this small section. Proclaiming in the name of Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Remember I told you that was their problem, wasn't it? That was the Jewish leader's problem. But the very thing that's the problem for the Jewish leaders is the very thing that's giving them boldness, courage, the freedom of speech to say the truth. You see, they're not making these claims on their own authority. They're making these claims on the authority of the one who was raised from the dead. They're saying, it's, it's this Jesus. It's by this 
man, that we stand before you well. <laughs> right? That's the end of verse 10. Then they go on to say in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that you rejected. They actually quote scripture here to him. They quote Psalm 118, 22. The builders who have become, who, uh, which has become the cornerstone, the essence, the, the, the whole thing is built on Jesus, is what they're saying. And there's salvation in no one else, for no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Now see, that's subtle, it's subversive, but it's, it's powerful. Because they, they opened up the statement in verse 10, whom you crucified, but they offered salvation to their oppressors. They said, hey, look, there's still hope for you because there's no one else, no, no way else that you can be saved except through his name. They're proclaiming the gospel even to their oppressors right there. Right then and there, they're saying there's still hope for you. You see, an Israelite would have no problem in saying, hey, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's Jonah 2.9, right? That salvation only belongs to the Lord. And they're saying, guess what? Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. And so salvation belongs to him. And so they're offering this there to even their enemies. So friends, there's a few things that we need to, to keep in mind as we think about this. A couple application points, right? I already hinted at some of them, but let me just drive them home here for you. If we truly stand up for gospel injustices that we see in the world, okay? So that means proclaiming the message of the gospel to those who don't believe whether that's going out and loving the poor and, and making a difference in the world or pursuing racial reconciliation, racial harmony, you know, like things that, that God has in his mind, right? Pure and undefiled religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. If we're, if we're truly doing these kinds of things, okay, if we're continuing the ministry of Christ, what does this text tell us? We will be persecuted. We will be hated. Because we're disrupting the status quo. There will be people in positions of power and authority that have influence over society that will see that their influence will slowly start to go away. And that upsets them. That scares them. And as I said, in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 or 2 Timothy you know, chapter 3, verse 12, if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. And so some of these gospel injustices that maybe we see in our world today is the abortion academic that is primarily happening in, you know, American ghettos, okay? People who can't afford to have children, so they abort them. And we've got a whole system of people, people of positions of influence and power that are just okay with that. Let's get rid of less black people and more, less Hispanic people by just letting them kill themselves. That's what's happening. It's genocide. <laughs> and they're letting them do it. They're killing babies, murdering babies, because it's an inconvenience. And if we stand up and say, hey, that's wrong, <laughs> we will be persecuted. We'll be hated. 
will be despised. Might even get tossed in jail. If we recognize that our public education system likes to circumvent the Christian worldview that's slowly undermining anything that we would teach to our children. If we go into a public school system and say, hey, I understand that you have to teach evolution, but we would appreciate if you would teach, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, God, you know, a theistic worldview as another possibility that there's plenty of scientific data uh, to say that as well. And say, no, why don't you just go away? We don't want you religious fundamentalists kind of coming into our school systems. I mean, and, and these are slow, like we have to understand that these, these, this is a war, and these are slow little battles that they're trying to use to plant to uh, seeds in our children to undermine a biblical worldview in the gospel. I, I watched it happen in my own experience. My freshman year of high school, my biology professor was teaching evolution, and he said, if anybody can offer me any scientific data for an, a different view, I'll teach it. I brought him the evidence, and he said, no, I'm not teaching this. <laughs> it's crushing for me. And then, you know, if we see the individual and systemic racial hatred that takes place in our society and we want to do something about it, we say, hey, this is not consistent with the gospel. This is not consistent with what God says about the world. We read Revelation 5. We see that all tribes, tongues, peoples, nations will be there worshiping Jesus Christ before the throne. And so this is wrong, you know, like <laughs> the most segregated time and, you know, all of American, you know, uh, life and rhythms is usually on Sunday morning, and we want to do something about it. We want to see racial equality happen. We want to see, you know, races coming together and worshiping the lamb that was slain. But if we stand up and we say that, we'll be hated. We'll be despised. Why? Because we're disrupting the status quo. But we know that the hope for us in the midst of these persecutions is what? The resurrection. That's our hope. It's not in the response of the people standing next to us or our neighbors or our, the leaders of our society. No, our hope is that we have a just king who went to the ground, who was violently murdered and persecuted himself, went into the ground, and God was so pleased with his life and his sacrifice that he raised him from the dead, and he's promised that any of us who put our hope, who work toward that end, that seeing the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed to every tribe, tongue, people, nation across the globe, that God will get more glory, that pleases our Heavenly Father, and he says, if you do that in the name of my Son, I will raise you from the dead. That one day your persecution will end. You'll stand before the just judge and we'll have to admit our own sins as well. We'll have to say, yes, I wronged people. I didn't do enough. But he'll say, I welcome you into my kingdom because of the blood, because of the broken body of my son, Jesus. And then I'm going to put, a, I'm going to make sure that all those people who wronged, not only people, but wronged my son, will be punished. They'll be given over to their own desires, which is the scariest thing God can ever do for us. I don't ever want God to give me over to myself, to my flesh. That's a scary place to be. I've seen it. People who are just in dark places, and God just gives them over. Yep, oh, 
Here you go. Have it your way. We've been there as parents, right, some of us? Warning our children, don't go that way, don't go that way, don't, don't do that, don't do that. Dad, there's nothing I can do. It's a scary place to be. Not be willing to listen to correction, to warnings. But we know it is through the life-transforming power of the resurrection that Jesus changes people. God was so pleased with him that if we pursue the same end, that God will be pleased with us, that he now looks on us because of Christ and says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Because of Jesus. Not because of anything we're doing, but because of Christ. This was the fuel that made the apostles go. This is the fuel that gives them the power and the boldness and the courage and the freedom of speech to talk right there to their oppressors and say, you crucified him. You murdered him. But God raised him from the dead. And some of you, um, as we move into verses 13 through 22, I promise I'm going to pick up pace here. You know, I want to you know, get you guys out of here. Uh, so I, I, know, I know how you feel, okay? So what we're going to see here, verses 13 through 22, is the power of worshipful allegiance. Okay? The power of worshipful allegiance. As some of you might have heard of Pastor Matt Chandler, the pastor down in Texas. I don't know how he can do that. I, I couldn't live in Texas myself, but, you know, uh, I'm sure God's given him the power to do it. So. Now, for many years, this pastor was was greatly inspired, convicted, compelled by the actions of many of the Christians during the civil rights movement, particularly the, the black American Christians. And he once had an opportunity, he, he, he just could not, when he thought through, you know, just imagine people being, you know, uh, beaten with clubs because they're peacefully protesting social injustice or pulling out just fire hoses and stringing down children, women, because they're just trying to make sure that they can eat a meal in a restaurant with white people. <laughs> I mean, this is the type of stuff that's going on. And, and, and so they're, they're uh, dogs. I mean, go read, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., just his, his letter to the, you know, pastor, to the white evangelical pastors from the letter in Birmingham prison. Just go read that letter and just see some of the things that were happening. I mean, dogs being sent at children. And Matt Chandler's just puzzled, like, what, what kept them going in the midst of that? Like, what did it? <laughs> like, how could they keep going in the midst of that kind of violence and hatred? And yet to not raise up their arms and not fight back. Like, he, he, it puzzled him. And so he had an opportunity to talk to a, uh, a black American history professor from Texas A&M University named Dr. Rigsby. And he said, Dr. Rigsby, like, what, what was it? What kept them going in the midst of all that persecution, all of that injustice? And here's what Dr. This is what Chandler writes was Dr. Rigsby's response. What he pointed to as the main refuge, the thing that sustained the obedience of African-Americans in the 60s during the civil rights movement was how they approached God and how they worshiped with one another. 
He said, I don't know if you've been part of an African-American church service, but the way they do it is this kind of call and response. And what does that mean? That means that in the service, there's no spectators with God. Everybody's involved. Isn't God good today? Yeah! Right? I mean, this is what they do. I mean, everybody's involved. Nobody's a spectator. Everybody comes to the football field ready to play. Everybody's in the game. There's an interaction at every level of worship. It's not just some guy on stage trying to motivate the people uh, through a, a powerful, charismatic speaker. No, everybody's charismatic. Everybody's in the audience. They're engaged passionately. And it's everybody kind of comes with this expectation. We got to get after the Lord. We got we to we go after Jesus here. We got to get filled up, ready to go out again this week to be persecuted. That it's going to go long. I don't know if you've been to a black church, but it goes all day, right? And they take a break, and then they come back and they do it again for another five hours. We start getting upset, right? That, you know, hey, pastor's going a little long today. You know, I got to go get lunch, right? No, these people go all day. I used to watch that as I, you know, went to my white church on my way. I would pass my friends at high school, their black church, and I'd, I'd leave. They were there before I even got there, you know, and I, I was pretty dedicated, you know, high school Christian, you know. They go there early for Sunday school and all that stuff, and I'm passing by and the parking lot's full. I come home, ready to go get lunch, parking lot's full, you know. I drive by to, like, go back, you know, go back out to soccer practice or whatever, parking lot's full. Uh, you know, I, I go back at home, get dressed, go back to church, you know, again for Sunday night service, parking lot's full. I'm leaving to go home. Parking lot's still full. I mean, it's all day. And so, this is from his Under the Faucet sermon that you can go look up from 2012. And so it's hard for many of us to, to look. At least, I, you know, I, I read this kind of language from Peter and John. Standing there in the midst of their oppressors and say, I could never do that. And what that shows me is, is that I have a worship disorder. If I don't have that kind of courage, if I don't have that kind of boldness, if I don't have that kind of freedom of speech, I don't worship. That I have more fear of man than I have of God. That's my problem. That's all of our problems. And we don't want to stand up and say something that we see is wrong in the world to uh, upset the, the status quo. When we see, oh, Man, have you ever had one of those moments where you're at work with somebody, you're out in the neighborhood, or you're out with some of your friends who you know are, are lost, and then they say something, and you're like, oh, I could preach the gospel right now. But what keeps us from saying it? We would disrupt the status quo. Everybody seems to be getting along fine. I, I don't want to say anything to rock the boat. And that shows me at that moment that what I'm worshiping is them. I'm worshiping the status quo. I'm not worshiping the God of the universe. <laughs> I'm worshiping something lesser. And this is just me being transparent. This is me being real with you. This is the stuff I do. <laughs> and I'm a pastor. Pastor. 
And we must not forget from Acts 2.42 that it says that they got together and they devoted themselves. You see, this is what we need to truly have this power in our lives, is that we need to be devoted to Christ every second of every day. Because we are instruments of God's glory. God's beauty, God's magnificence is advancing into the world through us. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God is making his appeal through us to the world. This is the role that you've been given, that I've been given, that everybody's, anyone who, who claims to be a Christian, this is their role to advance the glory of God, the beauty of God to every tribe, tongue, people, nation. But yet we cower in fear because we have a worship disorder. We must not forget that what fueled the flame of early church growth was heartfelt, thoughtful, caring, genuine worship. That was the driving force of evangelism and outreach. It wasn't this just, hey, we got to go get more people. Let's go knock on doors. It wasn't this guilt trip that if you don't do that, you're not a good Christian. No, it was, I talk about what I'm amazed by. What I'm enthralled with. You go out and see a good movie, you talk about it. We're not afraid to talk about that, are we? You go out and have a, a good cup of coffee at a new place, you talk about it. Hey, you got to try this new coffee shop. Hey, you got to try this new place we went to, to dinner the other night. The food was amazing. It tasted amazing. What if we talked about Jesus that way? You got to taste Jesus. He's amazing. He's, the aroma of Jesus just uplifts my soul. I get jacked about Jesus in the morning. I wake up thinking about him. I go to bed thinking about him. I, I just can't stop thinking about Jesus. That was the fuel that fanned the flame of evangelism in the early church. That's the fuel that fanned the flame of missions throughout church history. It's no different for us. It's vitally important what Greg does for you on Sunday morning. Vital. Worship. Because here it is, friends. And I'll, I'll wrap up with this. I'll wrap up. You, you got Matt, so you know that means I still got about five minutes left, right? Okay, so they stand before them and they say, you got to stop teaching in this guy's name. Right, and that was their compromise, right? They knew that they had evidence that this guy had been healed. And if you look at, if you go through here and you read 13 through 22 on your own time, you're going to see that the reason they, they come up with this compromise is not because... You know, they couldn't find a, a loophole in the law to put them in jail or to maybe even kill them. But no, they feared the people. Okay? The people saw the miracle. They, they were growing in influence. And they knew, like, if, if they tried to squash this or sweep this under the rug, the people would call them out on it. And so they said, okay, let's come up with a compromise. You Pharisees don't have a problem with the resurrection thing. We do, but hey, that's okay. Let's just all say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll let them teach the, the resurrection thing, just not in the name of Jesus. 
And what's Peter's response? Verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Am I supposed to fear you or am I supposed to fear the God of the universe? That's essentially what Peter said. Like, what, what am I supposed to do here? You know the Old Testament just as well as I do. Did the prophets who were persecuted by their own people just say, yeah, you know, you guys don't like what I'm saying, so I'm just not going to say it. See, that's a worship disorder. And what gave them the power is to say, I fear God, not you. Because we cannot, spe- we, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard what we've tasted, and it's good. You can't ask us to not do that. It would go against our conscience, right? You taste a good meal. You can't have somebody come up to you and say, hey, yeah, I would appreciate if you don't talk about that restaurant, you know, where you had a good meal. Who, who are you? It was good. I'm going to tell people about it. That's what Peter and John are saying here. Who are you? You're not the God of the universe. You have no authority over us. Even if you kill us, guess what? God was so pleased with his son that he raised him from the dead. He's going to do the same with us. We don't fear you. And as someone who grew up in the church, let me say this. I promise I'll close with this. This will be the last thing. It's hard for us as American Christians to, to really think Man, are we really persecuted, you know? Like, I, I read about the stories happening with our brothers and sisters across the globe and the things that they face. And I just think, yeah, well, you know, we don't really have it that bad here. <laughs> and so as I was talking to Matt this week, just about the best way that, you know, we could try to help you guys think through that, I've noticed that the majority of opposition, I've, I, I've been a Christian since I was five years old. Long time. Grew up in church. Been in church my whole life. And the people that I've run into that honestly oppose the message of Christ the most are those who proclaim to be Christians. And I think that's, that's the idea here, friends. That Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, says that there's two ways to avoid God. Through regular immoral, rebellious disobedience, right? That's the people who don't claim to love Jesus. You know, they just do what they want. And then through regular, moralistic, religious obedience. It's those who are performing to get what they want out of They don't really want God. They just want what they can get from God. They don't really want joy for you and Jesus. They want to control you. And you see it when you start to speak the truth of the Bible over them. You start to speak the truth of the gospel, and then they start to buck. <laughs> yeah, you've crossed the line now. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me to repent. And this, is the, this is primarily, as, as I've grown up as a Christian, this is the, this is the problem I've faced. And so I, I've been doing this exercise a lot lately because this has really come up in the past five years as I've been a pastor for the first time. So I've been spending a lot of time in the pastoral epistles. And if you want to explore this idea a bit more, I would encourage you to do that. First and second Timothy and Titus. 
and just look at the traits of people who oppose Paul. Go do that on your own. I'm not going to do that for you, you know. Do that yourself as an exercise this week or the next few weeks or next few months. Look at the traits of people who oppose God, who oppose God's messengers. You'll be amazed how much these people come into the church. It's people who will they'll get so caught up. I mean, you'll hear Paul talk about, I mean, they're, they're caught up about genealogies, washings of hands. They prey on weak women. I mean, you'll, you'll just see there's just tons of traits in there. They're irreverent babblers. They quarrel. They go around looking for fights. And you, you know, you met these, I mean, trust me, you met these kind of people at church where you're like, I don't want to talk to that person because I just know it's going to be a fight. They just want to pick a fight with me. I encourage you to go do that. And then you're going to see the attributes of Jesus' oppressors, Paul's oppressors, Peter's oppressors. They all shared similar attributes. I'm being honest with you. Maybe this is my charismatic, you know, theology kind of coming out with us, raised by charismatic parents. It's demonic. It's demonic. It's straight out of the depths of hell. It's what Satan was doing in the garden. Undermining God through questions. Did God really say, does the Bible really say, you're twisting scripture when they're the ones twisting scripture. <laughs> it's plain, it's simple, it's right there. And they'll rationalize it away through skepticism and cynicism. And so, friends, as we face these things, let me give you a goal. Let me give you a goal. I would hope that at the end of our lives, Verse 13 is what we would want to have said about us. Now they saw the boldness, the courage, the freedom of speech that Peter and John had. And we perceive that they're uneducated, <laughs> common men, and they were stuck. And why is that so important? Because that shows Jesus' power, not our own. And they recognize, here's the thing, that they had been with Jesus. What a great thing. Don't you want that said about you? <laughs> I want that said about me. I don't know. Like that guy, sometimes he says things that confuse me, and sometimes he's too black or he's too passionate, you know, like whatever, you know. But he's been with Jesus. That dude loves Jesus. Don't we all want that said about ourselves? <laughs> that Christ looks beautiful to people through us. They may not agree with us. They may reject our message. But just remember, as God said to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. May that be what's said of all of us. May that be our aim. May that be our goal as we journey through the book of Acts, right? As you guys go through the book of Acts over the next few months. To just say, okay, this is what it looks like for people who have been with Jesus. 
who have a personal relationship and encounter, whose lives have been radically changed and transformed by Jesus. It's not what we want said of all of us, right? Now let me pray. And uh, Greg and the band will come back up and continue to lead us in worship. Father, I thank you for what you, that you've given us this great example in Peter and John. And Father, right now I want to confess. I'm sure other people here want to confess that we have cowered in fear. We've been afraid to speak up in the name of Christ with our lost neighbors, with our co-workers, even among people we meet in church who we know need to repent of sin. We've been afraid. And it's because we fear man more than you. We should be more afraid of being, to get in a pattern of disobedience with our Father than so afraid to upset the, the status quo. Give us the courage. Give us the the true belief. I am reminded of the, the man who came to Jesus and said, heal my daughter. And he said, she's healed as long as you believe. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. <laughs> That's all of us. We believe that proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ to every person that we come in contact with, with that helping people to fight sin, that you know, teaching the truths of the Bible is vitally important to human flourishing. We believe these things, but help our unbelief. We struggle, we fight, our flesh tries to, to take hold, release us from it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please descend your Holy Spirit upon this place today that we may be leave with more of the fullness of joy in the Spirit of Christ to go out and to proclaim the good news to the captives, to set them free. Father, we need you. We cannot do this. Help us to worship the rest of this service, the rest of this week. We help each other fight for joy in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.